everybody. Welcome to another episode of Let's Read the Bible. I'm Evan. And I'm Aaron. And this is a podcast where we read through the Bible together every year and talk about what we learned along the way. If you'd like to follow along, you can download the YouVersion Bible app and look up the Grove Church in Marysville, Washington, and you can find our plan there. We also have the plan available on our website, grove.church. And if you are jumping in today, we are on day 106. Let's go. Trippy digis. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, it's not like it, we're still pretty early in the year, but yes. you know, 100, 100 days. But we're almost a third of the way through it, which is crazy to think about. Uh, so if you're reading along reading along with us uh, and maybe a question pops in your head or maybe it's it's a question that stumped you for years, we love to take time uh, as much as we can week over week to answer those questions. Uh, and currently we're going through a dry spell. So if you've got questions just waiting to be asked, you should send them in. There's three ways to send them. One is an email. The email address is info at grove.church. Make sure to put in the subject line a podcast question. Or if you're on the socials, we have a Facebook page and an Instagram handle. You can DM us both there. Uh, we are the Fa- Grove Church in Washington State, as Evan has already said. Our Instagram handle is the Grove CH, uh, and that's where you can send us those questions. All right. Well, this week begins kind. Of, this is kind of you know, listeners. This is kind of the first week of the rest of our lives. This right is now. crazy. Okay. This is just absolutely crazy. So we talked about. I talked about it a little bit last week, but we said that this is really when the chronological Bible is going to start to shine because we're going to or see, become a thorn in the flesh. Well, Aaron, Aaron depends a, on how some of you are. Aaron's a little salty about having to prepare the notes in a different Whoa. way today, but. It takes uh, twice. And here's the thing. I'm not complaining. I'm complaining because I was under the gun for time because I want to make sure I got everything done before we recorded, which is smart. And I committed to a time frame. So being the type of person I am, I want to follow through on my commitments. Evan, you're just a chill dude, man. Like you you're, you go with the flow when it comes to timeline. So that's the saltiness was like it, took, it takes twice as long uh, to make sure that everything's lined up as it should. And I'll be honest with you. It's fun. If you're someone who likes to read the Bible with the hardback, like your actual Bible in hand, not the app. It might get a little annoying that you have to flip to and from books so many times, but it actually is a pretty pretty rad way to read the Bible right now. And pretty much this will be the way it is for the rest of our the, lives. the year. No, for the rest uh, of our lives. From so, now on, this is the only way to read the Bible. So if you're I'm confused about what we're referencing, here's the idea, listeners. So for the for most of the previous months that we've been doing this, you're reading a whole book mm-hmm. and then you're jumping into another book. Now we're going to be intermixing everything. So this week you'll see that we're going to read a lot, a lot of Samuel. We're going to insert a bunch of Psalms in the middle, and we're actually getting the context of when these were written, which is really cool. And then we're also seeing some Chronicles. That's going to be the same when of we get Narnia? to... Yeah. We're going to intersperse Kings with Chronicles coming up here in a bit, and then all the prophets are going to mix in with all of the history books. Then we're going to get to the Gospels, and that'll be kind of a synoptic harmony of all four, which will be really cool. Then we'll get to Acts. We'll mix in a bunch of the epistles. And then we'll get to Revelation. So basically, for the rest of the year, we're going to be looking at the narrative story of the Bible and mixing in all the different books. Historical so it, stuff, yeah. Yeah, it'll be different, but I think it's going to be really cool. And it's going to, it, it's already for me this week, it's really enhanced my view of some of the Psalms because you're reading the story of this happened with David and then boom, take a break. Here's what he wrote right when this happened. Yep. So it, it is cool to be able to see things like that. So I, in total transparency, Evan took the easier side of this week's podcast. I don't by, know about that. By having the Psalms oh. and not having to jump through Chronicles like I had to. Chronicles. That's that's it. Good times. So Evan and I aren't on speaking terms right now. So oh, man. We're talking to you. Our, no, I'm just kidding. Totally right. just kidding. Well, let's start this week. We're picking right where we le- picking up right where we left off. So we're in 1 Samuel chapter 22. Remember that last week David fled 
to Gath uh, and to the Philistines. That they're going to come up quite a bit here in these mm-hmm. in these chapters. Uh, he pretends to be a madman and then eventually leaves them. Uh, he is hiding in a cave when we find him here in a cave of Adullam, which is in western Judah, and it's about halfway between the border of Philistia and Bethlehem. So it's in western Judah. Basically, think that. David went to Gath, and then he fled back across the border and stopped about halfway to Bethlehem and is hiding out there. Uh, And we see the beginnings of David's mighty men. So they are outcasts uh, from around Israel that rally to David. And his family comes and joins him too. So we're told that his uh, his fa- his parents and then his brothers all join him. Uh, this makes a ton, a ton of sense because they're now in danger. Uh, mm-hmm. And again, remember this is this is not modern times where I mean I guess I shouldn't say that because like if you're a political dissident in a bunch of countries, <laughs> you will you will die. But uh, at least in the U.S., if you're a political dissident, you're not going to get uh, killed. Probably. I mean I don't know. If you, you are in one of those countries. I'm sorry. Yeah, we're, that's we're, a we're praying for. We're praying for you. Um, and I don't mean to laugh about it. I just it's just the way like the way, uh, you know maybe you're maybe but anyway. Well, I was about to yeah because I was literally going to be like <laughs> yeah political distance normally get killed today and then I was like oh there's Russia and North Korea and China and like never mind. So anyway, but you know yeah. it's it's less prevalent today. Which Back, I will say this though, I actually this shows you how many times I've read the Bible and have just kind of read it without paying attention. Um, and this is the beauty of the chronological is, again, the, you read the narrative, but then the historical sides are interjected. I, I don't know if I ever picked up on the fact that at this point, David's brothers and his dad and his mom were with him. Uh, right. up, in, up until this reading, I was like, oh, that's right. I totally never picked up on that before. It makes total sense, but it was just kind of one of those random, like, ah, oh, I'm an idiot moments. It, ha- it happens to all It happens to all of us, which is one thing, we have said this a bunch, but it's one thing I like about doing the podcast is you're rereading the same stuff and you pick up on a bunch of things that you mm-hmm. always miss. So David is hiding in this cave and he writes two Psalms. So this is Psalms 57 and 142. Uh, both of these psalms show us the full gambit of emotions that David is feeling while he is in this situation. In Psalm 57, David asks God for mercy, and he talks about how he will continuously praise God for what he has done. And he ends with these lines, My heart is steadfast, O God, my heart is steadfast. I will sing and make melody. Awake my glory, awake, O harp and lyre. I will wake at, awake at the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations, for your steadfast love is great to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over the earth. So it's ending on this very upbeat, I will continuously praise you. And again, keep in mind, like he is... David is currently hiding in a cave because Saul, the king of Israel, is hunting him and because he has nowhere else to run, and yet he's taking time there to praise God. Psalm 142 has the same theme as 57, where David declares that he takes refuge in the Lord. Uh, however, there's a couple interesting differences. The tone of 142 is a little bit darker, so David still, David <laughs> yep. still has hope, but it's very much like he's expressing, here's all of my worry, here's the things that are going on but I trust in you. But but you can see that David's in a bit of a dark place here. Um, Also, in Psalm 57, so the first one we read, uh, David uses the title of God or Elohim throughout, whereas in Psalm uh, 142, David only uses the personal name of Yahweh or Lord in all caps is what is how that reads in our English Bibles. So kind of interesting there where I I think it's, I, I don't think it's an accident that in the Psalm that's a little bit more crying out and being in a dark place that David is using the personal name of God there as well. So pretty cool. Uh, we cut over to Chronicles and we get the deets of just who these guys are that are joining David. So we're told that it's a group of Gad who are described as, uh, I, I love this, <laughs> I love this description. Uh, this is First Chronicles 12 verse 8. 
From the Gadites, there went over to David at the stronghold in the wilderness, mighty and experienced warriors, each expert with a shield and spear whose faces were like that of lions and who were swift as gazelles along the mountains. So basically, these aren't these aren't some some schlubs. Like these are some really mighty warriors. Uh, we're also told that the least among these men of Gad was worth a hundred warriors, and the greatest being worth a thousand. So some real dudes. Well done. Um, I'm, I'm guessing that's a little bit of hyperbole there, but you know, still these, no. these guys are these guys are pretty sweet. Uh, And then we're also told that a group of 30 men from Benjamin and Judah, uh, they swear loyalty to David. And notice when you're reading that their oath specifically mentions that they are serving David because God is on his side. So essentially, I forgot the, I should have written down the actual ending line, but it's, we follow you because uh, your God protects you. That's my paraphrase uh, based off of memory. So after that, we're going to jump back into 1 Samuel, and we are told that David travels to Moab to leave his parents there, Um, the implication being that they're too old to live on the run, like David and his men are having to do. So he finds a place where his parents will be safe, uh, and the king of Moab is, you know, he seems pretty cool with it. He's like, yeah, whatever. After this, the prophet tells David to return to Judah. And uh, whoa, listeners, David actually listens to a prophet. Hey. So it's al- it's almost like when the kings of Israel listen to God through the prophets, that good things happen. So I don't know. It seems like something a certain father-in-law could have tried, but uh, whatever, whatever. Are they really still related now? <laughs> yeah, he's still married to Michael. Okay. Yeah. I mean, speaking from experience, even when your father-in-law tries to murder you, you're still related to them. Speaking so, from experience. Just, yeah. That was, that was a joke. Glenn oh, has not tried to kill I'm me. I'm going to have to reach out to Glenn. <laughs> um, but speaking of Saul, he finds out that a group of pe- priests helped David. And when he confronts the head of the clan, whose name is Ahimelech, uh, to answer, this goes down. So... Yeah, David's traveling. There's a group of priests that give him some supplies and send him on his way. Uh, there's you, in these passages, you get a bunch of snitches. Like you get a bunch of people who are just like going around and saying like, "Hey, Saul, David was here, and this guy was." Just, you know, it's just it's just a whole thing. Uh, so. To read what happens, it says, Then Ahimelech answered the king, And who among all of your servants is so faithful as David, who is the king's son-in-law and captain over your bodyguard and honored in your house? Is today the first time that I have inquired of God for him? No, let not the king impute anything to his servant or to all the house of my father, for your servant has known nothing of all this, much or little. And the king said, You shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and your father's house. And the king said to the guard who stood about him, turn and kill the priests of the Lord because their hand is with David. And they knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me. But the servants of the king would not put their hands and strike the priests of the Lord. Hey, good job, servants of the king. (laughs) Like way to to recognize that that's not a good order. Uh, But then the king said to Doeg, you turn and strike and kill the priests. And Doeg the Edomite turned and struck down the priests, and he killed on that day 85 persons who were in the linen ephod, which is a priest. Uh, and Nob, the city of the priest, he put to the sword both man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey, and sheep, he put to the sword. So <clears throat> Saul confronts Ahimelech about what they do. Ahimelech is like, why shouldn't we help David? He's like, he's awesome, and he's great to you, and he's loyal to you. And basically, you know, like, He's not paraphrase again, but like you're being a dummy right now, Saul. What's going on? Uh, Saul, what's crazy to me is again, remember that when you read Lord in all caps, that is the personal name of God. So when Saul says, Kill the priests of the Lord, he's saying, Kill the priests of Yahweh. Like he fully understands what he's ordering them to do. And you see the guards are like, 
Yeah, no, I'm not yep. going to like I'm not going to do that. <laughs> like that's that's clearly against the law. And when I say law, I mean the the law of God. Yeah. Uh and then we get we learn about Doeg who's just a real a real dingus and he's like, <laughs> "Yeah, absolutely. I would I I will do this for you." And not only that, he goes to the city of Nog, which is where the this where this clan of priests lives. He kills everyone. Like he burns the city to the ground, he kills the women, he kills the children. He Doeg is not exactly um He's not exactly a good guy. Let's just say that. So, uh, and then finally, we we read that one man named Abiathar, who is the son of a son of Ahimelech, is the only one who survives, and he becomes a very loyal companion to David for the rest of his life, um, or at least the rest of David's life. That's a teaser for something that's coming up later, <laughs> listeners. So, I mean, it's not a huge deal, but you know, when when we get to Solomon, we'll see that Solomon and Abiathar butt heads a little bit. And in fairness. I mean, Solomon's also a bit of a knucklehead, so what are you going to do? In Psalm 52, we we cut over to Psalms here, and this is a psalm that was written when David hears what Doeg had done. So we can assume that he writes this when uh, Abiathar comes (coughs) and lets him know. Uh, The psalm contrasts the mighty mighty man. We're not told who this is. I think it's Doeg. I think it's who David is writing about here. It could theoretically be Saul, but I think the way that he talks about him makes me think that it's Doeg. Um, And it could just be generic mighty man, but I I can't help but assume that David has a certain Edomite who just murdered a bunch of priests in his mind right now. Well, especially because he has such a regard for Saul. Right. I mean, he has such, he plays honor and we'll get to that in a little bit too. Um, But I think I would agree with you. I think it's about Doeg because of David's understanding of Saul as the anointed one you don't you don't speak against you don't come against you don't like literally as you see and you'll see it play out throughout uh, through the rest of Saul's life there's moments where where David uh, shows deep honor uh, and deep concern and care for for Saul even though his life has been at stake for right for yeah so the, the way David speaks to Saul directly makes me think that he wouldn't write about him like yeah. this so but let's let's unless just, he's a two-faced jackal oh come on david uh but anyways <laughs> not, not till later Wait, so what? let's read it here and we'll read a passage of it here in a second uh but once again the main idea of psalm 52 is that we seek refuge uh is where we seek refuge it's front and center so david it's contrast david contrasts himself with this mighty man and david's idea is that he seeks refuge in the lord uh and then we get this little passage here. Uh, but God will break you down forever. He will snatch and tear you from your tent. He will uproot your land from the living Selah. So he's like, hey, stop and think about that. And then we'll continue. Uh, <laughs> the righteous shall see and fear and shall laugh at him, saying, see the man who would not make God his refuge, but he trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. So that, yeah, that seems like Doeg to me, who's <laughs> just basically like he's He's doing whatever he needs to do to get to get ahead, even murdering a bunch of priests, which mm-hmm. obviously God is not going to be, he's not going to be okay with that. Uh, we continue on in First Samuel chapter 23. Uh, chapter 23 shows David acting as essentially the better king. And this is where we start to get this narrative of like, not only has, you know, Saul killed his thousands, but David killed his tens of thousands, which that song comes back up. It's so true. Um, but it also shows that David is acting as, a king yeah. when he when he should well when Saul should be in his stead. So the city of Keilah is being raided by the Philistines, and David and his men swoop in to save the day after inquiring to Yahweh. So they ask the Which Lord. Which is important to yes. note as well. Because he asked the Lord, like, can we go do this? And some of his men, you know, they're not acting so mighty right now. They're like, oh man, that's that'd be kind of hard. And David's like, no, nah, no, nah, the Lord said we got this, so let's go. Uh so later. 
David asks God if the Kelahites will betray him to Saul, and the answer is yes. So what a bunch of jerks, those Kelahites. After they get saved, God's like, oh yeah, if Saul comes, they're totally going to just turn you over. And I, get, I don't know, that might not be fair, because essentially what, they're, what they would be trying to avoid is Saul killing all of them, which mm-hmm. is clearly what, as, as, as was just shown- By Doeg. Yeah, with, clearly Saul is willing to make that order. So I guess, you know, give them a little, a little bit of grace on- not wanting all of their families to be killed here. Uh, But David and his men flee. So after this, Jonathan finds David, and we get this incredibly powerful moment. Uh, So this is in chapter 23, starting in verse 16. And Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horesh and strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, do not fear for the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel and I shall be next to you. Saul, my father, knows this. And the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. David remained at Horesh and Jonathan went home. So don't miss the two really powerful things that happened here. Number one, Jonathan has promised to defy the king, his mm-hmm. father. He is not going to let Saul hurt David. And number two, Dave, Jonathan acknowledges that David will be king. So Jonathan is kind of renouncing his birthright here. Yep. I shouldn't say kind of. He's renouncing his birthright here. And he's promising to be at David's side because Yahweh has chosen David to be king, not Jonathan. Yep. So I wish Jonathan lived so much. And maybe I don't because like, you know, David has a big fall. And so maybe Jonathan would have had something similar, but he's like... He's what makes you wonder a... though, too, if, if if this played out as Jonathan said it was, I mean, like we're, we're playing speculation now, right? Um, if Jonathan did live and he was the number two for David, could Jonathan have prevented David from making stupid choices? Yeah, that's true. Um, because there's such a tight-knit bond there. Like who did David have around him at the time of his fall to prevent him from being foolish. Joab, Joab's a bit of an enabler. <laughs> Absolutely. And, so. and we see that. And Joab, Joab even lives under his own deceitful, cunning ways. Like he he just lived the way he wanted to live. Anyways, so it just, it does make me wonder like, man, Jonathan was such a, a righteous dude. Like he was such a guy that lived so humbly. Uh, I think as, for as great as David was, I think Jonathan actually shows that he was, he was greater. Yeah, but. he yeah he and again it's kind of it's like kind of the Kennedy effect where you die young and so you kind of project out like what his life would have been greatness like. yeah. as but that's so true yeah too, but but Jonathan's Jonathan's a really great guy and yeah. imagine it is fun to imagine the alternate history where Jonathan is the head of the armies I don't think he would have prevented Bathsheba because Jonathan would have been at war at the time but maybe he would have been like no David you got to come with me well yeah because that was the thing right at the even in scripture and we'll get to this but at the time it was normal for kings to go to war. David stayed behind. Mm-hmm. Would Jonathan have let him stay behind? I don't know. I mean, could have, maybe. But at the end of the day, David was his own man, made his own choice, was the king. He got to have his way. Um, but it is, it's curious to me well, how that could have played out. So, yeah. Anyways. So David is hiding out in the land of Ziph and the, uh, you know, the Ziphites, they deserve some stitches because they snitch <laughs> on David uh, and he is forced to flee again. He goes from Ziph to En which I know what you're thinking, listeners. En is that the place from Song of Solomon? Yeah, yeah, it's the same place. So I don't, it's, I don't know why. Because <laughs> everybody's like, oh, I know that it's from Song Solomon. It's funny, like, you know how you just have like random things that stick out? Like, and I just always remember that En Gedi is the garden in Song of Solomon where they go. And so it's just like, when I read it, I was like, oh, yeah. Yep, never like, thought about there that. You go. So David flees there. And apparently later on, Solomon is like, this is a good place. This is some good stuff. Uh, so anyway, <laughs> we get to Psalm 54. 
And this is written when David finds out that the Ziphites betrayed him. Uh, and it's a short one, so we're just going to read this whole bad boy. But this says, Oh God, save me by your name and vindicate me by your might. Oh God, hear my prayer. Give ear to the words of my mouth, for strangers have risen against me. Ruthless men seek my life. They do not set God before themselves. Selah. Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. He will return the evil to my enemies in your faithfulness. Put an end to them with a freewill offering I will sacrifice to you. I will give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good. For he has delivered me from every trouble, and my eye has looked in triumph on my enemies. So basically, it's a straight up very simple psalm. It's asking God for his deliverance from the, I guess not really the Ziphites. He's asking for God's deliverance from Saul and his men as they come to, as they come to hunt him. Uh, so we're going to go back to 1 Samuel 24. And in this chapter, Saul goes after David once again, uh, and he gets much closer to David than he ever planned on being. Uh, So Saul, you know, he has to use the bathroom and he thinks to himself, ah, that cave, that's a great spot. I'm going to go, you know, I'm going to go pee in there. Uh, And so David and his men are just kind of looking on in disbelief because they're in the back of the cave and they look, and (laughs) there's just a guy wanders in, relieves himself. And then one of the men is like, David, I think that's Saul. I think that's yeah, the case. And literally, like the whole thing is like, this is your chance. Go, go, like, like go take it out. And David's like, no, I'm not going to do it. Uh, but he goes up and he, I don't know how he does this. He stealthily cuts off a corner of Saul's robe. Um, so and this robe must have been pretty big for Saul not to notice like a, a knife. And David also must be, you know, very adept at being stealthy, but he pulls it off. And so Saul leaves the cave and David confronts Saul. And he and he says, you know, I did, I did not raise up my hand against you, even though I could have killed you right now, which is what every single other person wanting to be king would have done in the in this context in the ancient world. That it, that's a no brainer, and Saul knows this. But David says, Saul is the anointed one of Yahweh, and he David is not going to be the one who removes Saul yep. from king. He's he's going to wait on the Lord to do that, which is kind of you know, it's like. You know how like in Lord of the Rings, when Bilbo takes the ring, it's because, you know, he doesn't do it in anger. He doesn't kill Gollum. Same thing. Same exact pre- you know principle at play here, where the way that David takes the kingship is very important. He can't take it with murder and disobeying God. He has to take it through obeying the Lord. So. Here's the deal. If you've not seen Lord of the Rings, that's okay. You don't have to go see it to understand what I've been saying. I mean, you can also read them. They're good books, but... They're long books. Yeah, that's true. That's fair, but they're great. Uh, anyway, so Saul expresses his grief and he apologized. I, it's funny. When I was writing the notes, I twice, because the story comes up similarly again, mm-hmm. I twice typed out repent, Saul repents. And I realized, no, he doesn't because he apologizes, he expresses his grief. And then but leaves. He, yeah, but he clearly does not change his actions because <laughs> like, he goes right back after David. Uh, spoilers. <laughs> yeah. After this goes down. So I think repent is the wrong word there. Um, but I think in the moment, it does seem like Saul genuinely feels remorse mm-hmm. for what he's done, but he just does not control himself and keeps going after David. Yeah. Well, I think in this, I think in these moments too, you then realize Saul's, this, I mean, we go back to David actually acting as if these are the right king with the Kelas, right? With the Kelaites. Something. But the reality of like, David's the one defending Israel while Saul's the one pursuing David. All of Saul's, at this point, the the bulk of what we get from Saul is that he's all about getting rid of David, killing David, trying to protect his throne and his legacy and his his lineage. Um, 
And the moment he does go to battle, it doesn't end well. But at the end of the day, you see his primary focus in the midst of everything is pursuit of David. Um, and so I think it's it's even more a, a greater contrast between how David is still mindful and aware in the midst of his fleeing from Saul, the, the needs of the people. Right. And so you see that tension that creates as well. No, I think it's very true. Um, and Saul also in this moment, he asks David to swear not to essentially destroy the house of Saul mm-hmm. uh, when he becomes king. So Saul here is acknowledging that he knows David's going to become king, which is funny because he's just, he's fighting it, even yeah. though he knows that like, this is clearly going to happen. Um, but speaking of, you know, like speaking of things that would be very natural, and this is the, tr- this is true of history up until the modern age. If you're going to take the king from another dynasty, you need to kill every family member of the king because they will have claims to the throne. And if ever there's a point where you're not as popular, all of a sudden they can rise up and they can get an army and then boom, you're you're overthrown once again. Yeah. So uh, it is a very um, normal thing in that world that David would have gone through and killed every member of Saul's family. That's why I mean when I say Saul's house is Saul's, you know, people who would have a claim to the throne. Uh, and so David promises not to do so. And that's going to come up uh, during... During Aaron's reading, ooh, so ooh, ready. I, I'm pretty sure at least, but, um, and then even though Saul expresses his grief, so David certainly does not trust him enough to return. So he, it says that he goes back to his own stronghold. So he, you know, Saul's not like, he, <laughs> David sees Saul and he realizes, yeah, I'm not going to go back and live in the king's palace right now. Um, so in chapter 25... Samuel's death, it gets a footnote. It's kind of- it's, it's weird. It's always weird to me. Like Samuel's such a major character, but he kind of disappears once the kings are anointed. Uh, and then it just says, Samuel died and the all of Israel mourned him and he was buried in his hometown. And that was it? Yep. Moving on. Like that's literally what it is. So yeah, but that that is the death of Samuel. And so that's why obviously, I mean, I said at the beginning, but obviously Samuel is not the one writing all of the book of Samuel. Mm-hmm. So uh, someone else had to help compile this as well. Uh, we also meet, and this is the main thing that ha- is happening in chapter 25, Abigail and Nabal, um, which I, I love the description that we get for them. It's so true. It says, now the name of the man was Nabal and the name of his wife was Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite, uh, which that one's kind of a bummer that like Caleb, who I love Caleb, he's awesome, but apparently his descendants have a reputation for being hotheaded and, you know, just idiots sometimes. So that's a, you know. That's a bummer legacy right it's there, true. but what are you going to do? Uh, and I just love that there's no explanation. It's just like he was a Calebite. And maybe uh, maybe I'm reading too much of that. Maybe that's just a statement of fact and not saying that it's a stereotype of the Calebites yeah. that they were doing it. Well, but I, I do think be. you got to remember too, and like our, our version of reading and writing today is more emotionally driven. And so we interpret things emotionally and sometimes like historical fact. Um, historical books of the Bible. I don't. I think they remove a lot of the emotion out of it too. It's just a different, just a different culture and time and age. But I do think it's funny because it's he was a Calebite carries the in, intent or the implication potentially that this is a reputation of most Calebites. But right, and it um, could it could very well be that he that this is not a stereotype. It's just like also it's just so you know he was yeah, a Calebite. Just distinguish so. the tribes. I don't know. Yeah, who knows? Uh, but David comes to Nabal's house and he's looking for, f- I put food, f- foot, uh, but he's looking for food and rest. Uh, Nabal tells David's servants to shove it. You know, he's like, hey, no, I'm not going to help you out. Uh, David is overcome with rage. He is very angry about <laughs> yep. this. And he takes 400 men to go kill Nabal and essentially burn his house to the ground. Uh, when a- I-, I-, I never caught this before. Um, Abigail does not hear that David is coming. Yep. What she hears is that what her husband, what her idiot husband did. And so she instinctively understands 
Oh no. So she goes Diplomacy. to Yeah, so she goes out in front anticipating what David is going to do. You kind of get the idea that Abigail understands men. Like yep. she and she's kind of like she's she's really great and she's looking out at like all the things that her idiot husband does and she realizes like she knows the type of guy that David is and she knows the way he's going to react as well. <laughs> so she she's very smart. She yeah. she knows exactly what's happening. Uh, so she meets David with enough supplies to feed his men, and then she begs him for mercy for her husband. Uh, David grants this, and he actually straight up, he says, uh, thank God that you came out to stop me from making this terrible mistake. Uh, or thank, I thank Yahweh that he sent you, I think is exactly the way that he phrases this. Um, but it's interesting to me, because, and this is a theme I'm realizing with David that it, it keeps extending out. Specifically, it's taking vengeance on his own instead of relying on Yahweh. Or I think the way he actually phrases it is trying to make, trying to save, oh my gosh, I should have just written this down, but trying to get my own salvation instead of relying on the Lord mm. is kind of how he phrases it. So this, the sin there would not just have been killing Nabal, it yeah. would have been David taking matters into his own hands and trying to deliver himself from this situation instead of trusting in the Lord. So this is a huge, this is a huge theme with David. Which is which is great, yeah. Because especially coming from Saul, yeah, and and we see this. It's with David and Goliath, right? When he fights Goliath, there's it's not David being like, "Yeah, I'm the best. I'm going to go take him down." It's like, no, the Lord's on our side, guys. What are mm-hmm. we even talking about? And he goes out and takes on the giant. And so David here, he almost slips up. It, it would it would almost be the equivalent of David taking the armor of Saul and going and charging at Goliath with a sword. Is almost what he does here, yeah. in, in, in a way. Yep. But Abigail stops him. Uh, and so Abigail returns and she tells, so d- she gets back home and Nabal's drunk because, you know, of course he is. And then, so she waits until the next day <laughs> and she's like, hey, just so you know, uh, David sent an army up here to kill you last night, but I gave them these supplies and they and they left and they said they're cool. And Nabal just is completely shocked and he falls into a coma and he dies 10 days later. So, and when David hears about this, he's like, sweet, <laughs> like he's not, no tears shed. For Nabal, uh, he's, he thanks the Lord for taking vengeance on him, uh, even though, mm-hmm. you know, he didn't have to. Uh, and then David is so impressed with Abigail that he actually sends servants. And he's like, hey, you want to be my second wife? And she's like, yeah, totally awesome. Yeah. So, Well, you don't say no to the king. Oh, yeah. Well, the, but even with Nabal, the future king. But even Nabal, you, like when he says he falls into a coma, like the reality is it, it has the implication there's a seizure of some sort. Uh, and then he ended up having a stroke or whatever that led to a seizure, something along those lines. Um, that was just innocence. Either way, it was a a response from Yahweh. That's how it was viewed and how it's understood yep. because of his, his lack of diplomacy uh, towards David. So, yeah, and I will say, you which know, I thought that was interesting too, just the idea of a seizure and things like that. Like, like oh, okay. yeah, I think the the literal is he was he became like a stone. I mm-hmm. think is what it says. So it's it's interesting. Um, I will say, I, I feel I one of the flags I plant is that anytime you see polygamy. Anywhere in the Bible, it does not work out well. Yes. Like it's almost always a bad thing. I will say with this, uh, at least David has good taste. In who's, <laughs> in, if, he's, if you're going to take a second wife, oh, Abigail's great. Like no complaints, no complaints there. Uh, but still should have done it. Still should, yeah. Still doesn't work out very well. No. But although nothing bad with Abigail. Well, it's other, it's other wives. Well, this would that, technically uh, be his third wife at this point, right? Uh, well, we he don't. Michael, then Anahome. So I Anna Home, I think, is his third wife. No, Abigail's his third wife. Is it? Is it? Yep. So it just well, I, the reason why I say it is because I know we hit it later in Chronicles or whatever, and even in Samuel, it details here's his sons, his firstborns here, second born uh, here. Oh, gotcha. Uh, and so Abigail, I think, is the third. Maybe I'm. Well, so okay. So at the end of this, shoot, pa- at the end of this passage, it says at the same time he also took Anna Home as his wife. So mm-hmm. that could be right after this, it happens. Or it could just be, he took Abigail to be a second wife and we care more about her. Mm-hmm. Also, yeah. around this time, this happened as well. So yeah, could, the it, firstborn son comes from Anahome. 
is what it comes from. I know that. Right. Because so, Dave and Michael famously do not have any kids. Yeah. And she's the one that, anyways. Yes. We'll get to that. Next week. <laughs> All righty. So anyway, uh, in chapter 26, David is once again presented with the opportunity to kill Saul. Uh, this time it's with Abishai, who is the coolest of the mighty men. I think I talked <laughs> about this last year, but when I was like, you know how when you're a kid, you have to pick your favorite everything. So when I was reading about the mighty men, I was like, oh, I have to pick a favorite mighty man. And I landed on Abishai because he, he's the brother of Joab and Ashael. And he's, he's really He's cool. the middle brother. Ah, oh, he's awesome. Abishai he becomes the, the leader of the army too, doesn't he? Eventually, yeah. Or the leader of the men, something like that. Yep. Uh, and so he, David's like, hey, there's the camp of Saul. Who wants to come with me? And Abishai's like- uh, I'm in. I, yeah, absolutely. Dibs. And so they sneak in. Yeah, dibs. Pretty much. You, you get that vibe that that's how he is. Uh, they find Everyone's asleep. They find Saul and Abner, who is the commander of Saul's armies right next to each other. And Abishai's like, hey, let me pin Saul to the ground for with you right spear. now. Yep. I only need one shot. I'm not going to miss. I'm not going to have to do it twice. I'll pin him once and then we can run. And David's like, no, like the Lord's anointed. You were with me in the cave, Abishai, come on. So when I appreciate the Lord, you see the loyalty of the men and wanting to do this, even in the cave, you see the loyalty of the men wanting to uh, strike down Saul to avenge their king be, or their, their leader, because they know the wrongdoing that David has been put through. Um, and, and David's protection, understanding of the Lord's anointed, he doesn't want the punishment to fall on his men. Like, so you see this really kind of crazy, this loyalty, I'm going to fight for you. I'll die. Because he, because I, I would go as far as saying Abishai understands, like, if I do this, I'm probably going to die for you. Like, yeah, I'm fair. giving up my life for you so you don't have to deal with the punishment. Uh, and so there's such a, an, an incredible loyalty here that you see between David and these men. And again, these are men that were outcast of uh, of the tribes around around the time. So they all came to David because they were they were outcasts. It so. kind of reminds me of, and this is not a perfect example because I'm going to compare David and Jesus here, but they're clearly not, they're clearly not on the same, on the same plane of, of holiness. But um, it reminds me of when Jesus is talking about how he's the Messiah and the disciples are like, oh, cool. You're going to overthrow Rome and stuff. He's like, no, that's not what this is about. Like I'm going to do it a different way. Mm-hmm. Um, and you don't really fault the disciples because they're operating under the assumption of like, this is what the Messiah is going to be. Yep. You don't really fault the mighty men because they're operating under, yeah, this is what kings do. You're going to kill the other king. You're going to take power. It's going to yeah. be awesome. Uh, but David's like, no, I'm going to do this another way. Yep. And so I, I love that. Yeah. Like you said, I don't really fault the mighty men for being in this mindset because they're they're warriors. <laughs> it's their mindset. But I do love that David is saying, no, like this is the Lord is going to make me king. Mm-hmm. It kind of goes back to that theme of judges as well, where this is going to be the Lord's victory, not not mine. Yeah. The Lord is going to make me king. I am not going to take the throne for myself. Uh, so anyway, so, so yeah, David says no. Uh, and so David, yeah, uh, he takes Saul's spear though and water jug that's hanging and he shouts from a distance. So they leave the camp and he shouts out from the distance like, hey, Saul, just so you know, paraphrasing here, uh, I could have killed you again. Like we're, we're back, we're back, baby. <laughs> like, what are you doing right now? And then he also tells Abner like, hey, he you calls sh- out Abner. Yeah. Like, and you were sleeping. Your job is to protect the king. Come on, man. And so, it, yeah, not only is David getting after Saul for coming after him still, uh, he's getting after Abner for sucking at his job. So. Well, in the contrast of David and, and and Abishai weren't sleeping. Like at the same time, I, I, I'm assuming it was nighttime. I don't remember the, the specific right. con. But the Abishai, who was one of David's men, wasn't sleeping. He was wide awake. So you just see the contrast again, like this the, this interesting tension playing out is the contrast between David and Saul, David's men versus Saul's men. Um, and we'll get to this later with Abner, but you just saw the, you, you see the lack of loyalty in some respects for, mm-hmm. for Abner. Yep. Uh, so Saul once again apologizes to David and swears that he will never try to hurt him again. And he asks David to return. I act, this, this actually could have been real repentance because I don't think Saul tries 
to hurt to kill David again. Now, granted, we don't know how much time passes, but mm-hmm. I, I I believe I, I, I could be very wrong. But the, on this. I believe, and I, but I do believe this is the last real instance where Saul is pursuing David. Is it not? I'm pretty sure it is. I believe so. Yeah. At least that's recorded in in scripture. So, um, so there very well could be whether it was repentance or just acceptance of the fact that. I'm done. I can't do this anymore. I like I to know. see the best in people. So I hope that this was a real moment of repentance here, but who knows? Either way, Either Saul's way, yeah. like, hey, David, come back. But David ain't no dummy. <laughs> so he's like, <laughs> no, nah, I'm good. No, I'm going to wait this one out. But uh, but thanks for not coming after see me on the again, other side. Saul, hopefully. Uh, so in the beginning of chapter 27, David flees back to Philistia, uh, specifically returning to Gath under King Achish. So we're back where we started the story is he's, he's back with that same king. Only this time he's not pretending to be a madman. He's just, you know, hey, I'm... I'm yeah, here. I am who I am. What, you know, what, 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 what do you need, King? Uh, quick segue to Chronicles. We learn of some more men who join David as he flees. So these are specifically when he's fleeing to Philistia uh, or Philistia. I don't know how you pronounce it. Uh, but we get uh, some members of Saul's own family. Or among, so it's a bunch of Benjaminites and then specifically members from Saul's own family join him as well. So, hey, Saul's starting to lose some steam here. Mm-hmm. Uh, back to Samuel. While David is under King Achish, we learn that he raids lands within Philistia, however, not inhabited by the Philistines. Uh, and he goes in and he kills everyone. He kills any witnesses. And then he brings back the spoils to the king. And the king is like, oh, sweet. Where is this from? He's like, oh, this is a town in Judah. I, I went and destroyed. And the king's like, oh, sweet. Thanks, man. And then also the king's thinking to himself, man, David's never going to get to go back to Israel now because they hate him because he's killing all their people. Uh, so apparently Achish needs a little bit more, um, you know, he needs to take a little bit more care in gain, gaining some information about his kingdom there. Uh, so, but yeah, David or Achish is just like, yeah, this is awesome. I'm all about it. Uh, in chapter 28, Achish prepares to make war with Israel. Surprise, you know, the Philistines are going to war with Israel. <laughs> what? Uh, and Achish is expecting David to fight with his armies. And David is like, yeah, I'm totally going to do that. So, uh, and I, here's the thing. We don't actually find out if David would have done that. Spoiler, spoilers. I I choose to think that David would not have actually attacked the armies of Israel. I think he would have attacked Philistine, the Philistines. Yeah, he would have just gone for it. So, yeah, I think. He would have forced him to play his cards or he would have would have ran away. It's like that scene in Braveheart where, where the Irish yep. charge and then they just joined the Scots. I'm like, I feel like that's what would have gone down. So, but who knows? Uh, either, either way, when Saul sees the armies of the Philistines, he is very afraid and he seeks God, but receives no answer because God has rejected him. Uh, and so Saul thinks to himself, man, if only there was a medium or a necromancer, but God called, God commanded me to get rid of all the mediums and necromancers in, in Israel. So he finds one and then, oh my gosh, Saul, this is just like, of all the dumb things that Saul does, this is right up there. Uh, and so... He finds a medium and he convinces her, I believe in Endor, which is, you know, of Star Wars fame. And then he uh, he's like, hey, I need you to find Samuel for me so I can talk to him. And he literally swears on the name of Yahweh that she is going to be okay for doing this. So, so I feel like when Saul makes bad decisions, he invokes the name of mm-hmm. the Lord, which is just really weird. Like when he orders the deaths of the priests, he's like, yeah, kill all the priests of Yahweh. Like he understands what he's doing here. And even here, when he's deliberately disobeying a command from God, he swears on God's holy name that yeah. he, that the... But nothing bad I mean, happens to her, correct? Yeah. I mean, he holds up his end of yeah. the deal, but it's just one of those things where like, it just... It's just still a just lack blows, of reverence. Yeah. It blows my mind that Saul in these moments is cl- clearly has Yahweh on his mind and he's still doing these, ba- these bad things, but what are you going to do? Uh, so she summons Samuel 
who's kind of grumpy being summoned from the dead and all. Uh, and then, <laughs> which is, it's just kind of funny the way Why you- Why do you wake me up? Yeah, seriously. It's just like, hey, what are you doing? Come on, man. Uh, and then, and this is also the, o- this is the only instance that we get of this in mm-hmm. the Bible. So it's kind of interesting. Which that, is crazy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The implications of it. Yep. Uh, and so, and Samuel's like, yeah, of course God isn't answering you. He's done with you. Uh, and you're going to die. So leave me alone. It's kind of like paraphrasing, but that's essentially what Samuel's after. Uh, and so Saul is, you know, he's understandably pretty upset. And so the medium like is like, hey, here's some, she makes him some bread unleavened. And then she's like, hey, you know, here, have this. Sorry about, sorry about your answer, buddy. <laughs> That'll be fifty nine ninety nine. I don't know if anyway. Uh, so in chapter, in chapter 29, the nobles under King Achish uh, say, "Hey, like we don't want to go to battle with David. What if he switches sides?" And I love, I love that Achish says, "David has been nothing but honest with me," which is I just put in the notes, "lol," because like David's been lying to him nonstop. He's been raiding Philistine lands, but Achish even is, from the very beginning of meeting him. True, yeah, when he's pretty, yeah, David has been has not been honest with King Achish yep. of the Philistines, but. <laughs> Apparently he's been very good at lying. So, but Akish listens to his, he listens to his guard or not his guards. He listens to his commanders. And he's mm-hmm. like, okay, fine. If you don't want to fight with him, we don't have to fight with him. And he sends him away. Uh, so in Chronicles, we're told that after this happens, some men of Manasseh join David. So cool. Uh, Ephraim, you'll remember is the, the tribe that was, you know, kept losing out on all of the battles. And so it's nice that Ephraim's brother tribe, Manasseh gets to join in on some of this <laughs> action now. So good for them. Uh, and then we'll get to Psalm 56, and this is written as he we're, – we're told in the in the psalm, and not told anywhere else, that he's actually seized by the Philistines and driven away. So it's a little bit more um, – it's not just the king saying, hey, more for- can forceful. you leave? Yeah, it's very forceful. Uh, so he writes this psalm, and it's about how – it expresses how he will trust in God alone. And just a little passage from this, and this is starting in verse 9 of Psalm 56. Then my en- enemies will turn back in this – in the day when I call, this I know that God is for me. In God, whose word I praise, in the Lord, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? Love that line. Because yep. essentially, like as he's at one of his low points, he's essentially saying, man can't touch me because I know that this is this is God's victory that he's going to win. Mm-hmm. All right. We're going to chapter 30 of, we're almost going to, we're about to finish up for Samuel here, listeners. So just crazy, exciting stuff. Uh, in chapter three, David returns to find out that the Amalekites have raided his camp and kidnapped the wives and children of his men. Uh, we are told that some of the men even discussed stoning David for this. So some of his mighty, it's funny because I always, as a kid, you always think of David's mighty men as like all being the same, but he has a very loyal, hardcore group of the mighty men. And then a bunch of them are kind of worthless fellows, to use the phrase that was with Jephthah's men. They're, they're kind of, you know, they're, they're a little bit wishy-washy, uh, but they're angry. And so they're thinking, okay, well, do we just kill David to, to get over this, or what are we going to do? Uh, but David trusts in the Lord, and he leads his men to catch the Amalekites. Uh, they, they get to a river crossing, and about 200 men are too... They're too exhausted to make the crossing. So 400 go forward and 200 stay back. Uh, I I say that because it's important here in a little bit. Uh, And eventually they catch the Amalekites and they wipe them out and they take back their families. And no one one was killed in this. So, uh, well, none of the women and children were killed. I don't know if they're, I don't think any of them might even were killed either though, but I didn't think about that. Um, Anyways. No, I don't believe so. So David has to restrain some of his men again. Oh, and the words, it actually is the worthless fellows is used here again. So we, we see that once again. 
uh, who want to keep the spoils of war from the group of men who were too exhausted to cross the river. So like, hey, you know, they can have their wives and kids back, but they didn't. They didn't cross the river. They'd got they here late. This, yeah. And David's like, shut up. No, like we're 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 in this together, everybody. Seriously. And so David, you I know, have spoken. Yeah. So David's a good guy here. Uh, in Chronicles, we're told that the men of Manasseh were pretty darn helpful during this battle. So we just get a little aside that uh, hey, you know, the men of Manasseh they. They're good times. They were they were able to really make it happen. Uh, and in 1 Samuel 31, we uh, finally get to this battle between the Philistines and the Israelites. Israel is routed, and the three sons of Saul, uh, unfortunately, including Jonathan, are killed. Uh, Saul knows that this, that he will be killed, and he, he asks his armor bearer to kill him so that the Philistines don't grab him. Uh, when Saul refuses, or when sorry, when the armor bearer refuses, Saul kills himself, and then his armor bearer does the same. The next day, the Philistines find the body of Saul, and they cut off his head, and they begin to show it off, and they sacrifice it to their idols. Um, which obviously this is a really sad story. It's the the death of the king, specifically the death of Jonathan, is really a bummer here as well. Um, but it does end on this uplifting might be the wrong word, but it ends on this note, which I which I really like. It says, but when the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all of the valiant men arose and they went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan and they came to Jabesh and buried them there. And they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted for seven days. So essentially when there's a group of men who, or there's just one town, they hear about this and all the men of the town go Mm -hmm. and they find the the bodies of Saul and his sons, and they take them and they bury them in Israel the way that they deserve to be buried. So good for them. Good deal. Uh, we have a couple cuts that we're going to do here. So we're in the reading plan, you'll notice that we cut back to Chronicles and we go a little bit out of order. And then we have one thing in Second Samuel that happens at the same time. And then we'll get into uh, Aaron's readings for the day. Ooh. But uh, in First Chronicles, it gives us an account that's pretty much the same. If you read it, there's a few little differences, but just kind of in the way it's written. Uh, however, we learn that the head of Saul was placed at the temple of Dagon. So specifically, that's where... And Dagon, remember, is the fish god who famously... Uh, I shouldn't say the fish god does, but the idol that they make of Dagon is the one that bows to the Ark of the Covenant. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but then, you know, they're still worshiping, even though even after that embarrassing, they're still like, hey, Dagon's our guy. So... Philistines aren't the brightest bulbs in the bunch. Uh, Chronicles also includes an epilogue at the end of this, which is really fitting. And it says, so Saul died for his breach of faith. He broke faith with the Lord in that he did not keep the command of the Lord and also consulted a medium seeking guidance. He did not seek guidance from the Lord. Therefore, the Lord put him to death and turned the kingdom over to David, the son of Jesse. So just a nice little... Which that's such an interesting... Like I, I remember I had to look this up and kind of review it because when I was reading through it, it was confusing to me that it says that Saul did not ask God, but Saul's point in seeking out Samuel was that he was asking God, but God never responded to him. Um, the nuance here, just in case in case you're like me and you're it's like, well, wait a minute. Uh-huh. Saul said that I didn't, he, he was asking God, God never responded to him. Now it says in scripture that he never asked God. This is a contradiction. It's not. It's actually what, what the intention here is is that Saul did lip service saying, God, what should I do? What should I do? What should I do? But God didn't answer him because he wasn't actually inquiring, Lord, what do you want me to do? Um, it was more of a, uh, uh, what's the word? More of like a transaction-based uh, ask of Saul to God, like, God, I need you to deliver me. What What do you? What do I do? Where God's not going to, it was, a, the heart was not, it's like, that's a better way to say it. Saul's heart was not in the inquiring of the Lord. Right. Saul's heart was in it for himself to try and make sure he had clarity on what to do. Uh, so God remained silent uh, in that time, So which is what led Saul to then 
pursue the the necromancer and have Samuel brought back in this weird moment. Um, and so that's the difference there. Because it is, when you read it, you re- the, the way it's read, translated, is that Saul was asking of the Lord. The Lord did not respond to him. He went to seek out the necromancer or whatever. Um, and then you see this in, in, in Chronicles um, that he didn't inquire of God. The nuance there is the heart behind it. Yeah. And so, which is interesting because if we're just reading it flatly, it's like, that's a contradiction. It doesn't make any sense because Saul was. So it's funny because uh, yeah, I didn't catch it at all. I was like, oh, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. Like, like it's, it's good reading both of us reading because then you just pick mm-hmm. up on different things. Uh, and then finally, the other section in Chronicles is a repeat of Saul's genealogy. So also one of a fitting thing to read at the end there. Uh, and then finally, we get one verse in 2 Samuel that actually chronologically takes place here. Uh, and that is one of Jonathan's sons, when the, when news reaches the city about what has happened, the the nurse takes one of Jonathan's sons and she flees. So I wonder if, yep. that, I wonder if that comes up later. Huh. Maybe. Who knows? Well, before we, before we get into uh, our next section of reading here, we do want to take a moment to say, hey, you know, if you haven't left us a five-star review yet, uh, particularly on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, that is super helpful. It helps get the podcast out there to more people uh, and also just, you know, helps continue to grow this community. And if you leave a written review on Apple Podcasts, we will read it on the air just like... Uh, I wanna, I'm trying to, I've been trying to figure out the name. Oh, okay. Uh, I want to say it's Cute Polly, Q-U-T-E-P-O-L-O-Y. Sure, I, say. I believe it. So I'm going to say that. Um, but she says this, merci beaucoup for this podcast. Bienvenue. Uh, you are very welcome. Uh, thanks for leaving us a review. This is what she says. She's like, love listening to Aaron and Evan. They have character and not at all boring. That's the best line of the whole thing. No, I'm just kidding. Thank you. Um, we have a lot of fun with this. Uh, but she says, it makes my reading a lot easier as they discuss the historical, historical backgrounds, discussions, and options about Bible stories. A must add to your Bible study, theology studies, and all allows you to dig deeper uh, while reading this wonderful library of books. Uh, so yes, thank you very much for that review. And and I appreciate the compliment uh, that it's not just a podcast where we're just kind of bantering back and forth, but that there actually uh, is some some meat and value to it. So, um, so thank you for that. Would love for you, if you're one of our listeners who has yet to leave a written review on po- Apple Podcasts, please make sure to do uh, and leave us a five-star, if you will, as well. So um, yes, we're jumping into, uh, we actually start, uh, we finished our ninth book, uh, of the Bible so far in the Old Testament. We're jumping into our 10th, uh, and we see the continuation of the story. Just as a reminder, 2 Samuel and 1 Samuel were meant to be one book. They're not separate books. Um, so if you've got a study Bible like I do, where they have introductions to each of the books of the Bible, you'll see that there's actually not much of an introduction to 2 Samuel, because the majority of it, at least in my study Bible, the majority of it is introduced at the beginning of 1 Samuel, because it's a continuation of the story. Um, so we'll see in 2 Samuel, it, it details really the handoff and the launch of David as king uh, of Israel. Um, Chapter one, we're brought with this interesting dialogue, excuse me, uh, interesting moment where uh, there's a witness of Saul's death, uh, who is an Amalekite, which we learn of. Um, And ironically, this is also uh, David just returns from having defeated the Amalekites. And a few days later, he finds a witness comes to David to say, hey, Saul and his sons are dead. Um, and, And I think it's important in this chapter uh, and really in this section of the first three chapters to pay attention uh, to David's honor and respect of Saul. Um, he's told by this witness that David, uh, that Saul and his sons are both dead. Uh, and then you see the mourn, the mourning and the grief that um, Saul experiences and navigates through 
with the death of Saul and more so the death of Jonathan. And I think it's important to, and, and I want to read th- this chunk of scripture here in, in chapter one of second Samuel, uh, because you see David is a very, um, I don't know. He's a songwriter. He, he writes the, uh, he's a lyrical genius, um, but it's also the way he expresses. It's also the way that he communicates. It's also the way he's, he has allows us insight into what he's navigating in the moments. Uh, and he wrote, he has this song of lament that he uh, has for Saul and Jonathan. Uh, and so it says this in chapter uh, one, verse 17 of second Samuel it says, David sang the following lament for Saul and his son, Jonathan. And, and this is important. He ordered that the Judites be taught the song of the bow. It is written in the book of Jashar. Um, so there's just this this importance to David in reflecting and remembering Saul and Jonathan. It says this in verse 19, the splendor of Israel lies slain on your heights, how the mighty have fallen. Do, do not tell it in Gath. Don't announce it in the marketplace of Ashkelon or the daughters of the Philistines will rejoice the da- and the daughters of the uncircumcised will celebrate. Mountains of Gilboa, Gilboa, let no dew or rain be on you or fields of offerings. For there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul, no longer anointed with oil. Jonathan's bow never retreated. Saul's sword never returned, unstained from the blood of the slain and from the flesh of the mighty. Saul and Jonathan loved and, and delightful. They are not parted in life. They were not parted in life or death. They were swifter than eagles, stronger than lions, which is a massive compliment. Um, and then he says this, daughters of Israel, weep for Saul, who clothed you in scarlet with luxurious things, who decked your garments with gold ornaments. How the mighty have fallen in the thick of battle. Jonathan lies slain on your heights. I grieve for you, Jonathan, my brother. You were such a friend to me. Your love for me was more wondrous than the love of a woman, of women. How the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war have perished. And I just appreciate for, for us the significance of David's not just love and care for Saul and Jonathan, but the honor he pays tribute to, the honor he pays and respect to, to Saul and the news that he received. Um, you see in chapter two that David goes to Hebron where the men of Judah came and anointed him king over Judah. Uh, I, I will say this before I go any further. Um, there is an instance at the end of this where uh, this Amalekite is uh, returned favor because what he says to David as he in, uh, informs him of Saul's death is that he was a witness there. Uh, and then David asks, hey, tell me more about that. Uh, and I want to make sure I'm not getting ahead of myself here for a second. Um, but what happens is this this Amalekite who goes unnamed says, hey, I killed him. I actually finished the job. Yeah, this is one of my, uh, it's it's one of like the most funny things to read in scripture where he's like, he's thinking to himself like, oh yeah, David's going to love me. Yeah, and he brings, he brings Saul's armor um, and sword to David and uh, thinking he's going to get a reward. He thinking he's going to get favor or... Um, David's going to be like, Hey, great job. You inherit half of this. Um, but because of David's heart to honor well, uh, this Amalekite ends up dying. He, he says, you're what would cause you to be the one who struck down the Lord's anointed? Um, the armor bearer, Saul's armor bearer, if you remember, wouldn't do it. And, and as we wrap up first Samuel, we'll see his armor bearer wouldn't touch him. Um, and so Saul fell on his own sword. So there's, so there's a couple of things that could have been happening here that I remember reading about. Um, one is that this Amalekite um, was witness and saw what happened and collected the armor and the sword after Saul had died. Um, or the reality is maybe he was the one that, that killed Saul. And we see just a little bit extra content of what happened and played out. But the truth of the matter, what most likely happened is this Amalekite saw an opportunity to gain favor with David. So he lied about what he did thinking, not just am I a witness to Saul's death, 
but I also am the one who finished killing him so he wouldn't be killed by the hands of the Philistines. Um, which is a really big thing too, because there was, uh, he came at it from a perspective of, I, w- I was a mercy killing. I'm the one that did the, nope, David has him killed. Uh, and that, that same instance will have play out a little bit later in his life. Um, so then chapter two, sorry, we see David go to, goes to Hebron, uh, where the men of Judah come anoint him king over Judah. Uh, but then you see Abner, who was Saul's army commander, uh, took the last son of Saul, uh, Ishbosheth, um, and went north to this town called Menaheim and anoints him over Gilead, Asher, Jezreel, which is pretty much Israel at this point. Um, and then we see the beginnings of a, a war uh, between David, David's army and Saul's family. Uh, but I also thought it was interesting too. We know later on that there's going to be a kingdom split, that David is the, spoilers, the, the, la- the real like last unified king. But we see this this reality of a split already before David is even anointed king. And I don't know if I ever picked up on that before. Um, but if you've been listening to our podcast for more than the last year, uh, you'll know these are things that we've already talked about. Uh, but there is a split that comes after David's reign. But you see this, this split that already plays out because Abner, who is loyal to the family of Saul for a time, um, takes his, Saul's last remaining son, Ishbosheth, and runs away with him and then anoints him king over Israel. Uh, but I believe Ishbosheth is still kind of young, so Abner takes a lot of the reins and the and the leading the people. Um, so there's this split that happens. You see, David and Abner are going to go toe to toe. David's arm, army wins, um, and 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 I believe this is where there's like, anyways, it's, it's there's a battle that goes on. David's army wins. Joab, who's David's um, commander, so to speak, of David's army. Uh, his younger brother, Ashael is killed by Abner. And this is, this will come back full circle a little bit later. Um, but what ends up happening is in this midst of this battle, Ashael, who's young and swift and fast is how he's described is chasing after, uh, Abner and Abner's running from him and tries to tell him to turn back or whatever he doesn't. And so then Abner ends up killing Ashael. And so then at the end of all of this, David's army wins, Abner is fleeing and runs away. Um, and then we we'll see in chapter three, verses one through five. Uh, and also in Chronicles three, one and four, you see this introduction of this war that is detailed between David's army and Saul's family. Um, it also gives us a glimpse of David's wives or David's sons and his wives. And at this point of the story, he has six wives. Uh, he's just, you know, <laughs> just taking some wives. So, we, I mean, we fault Solomon for how many ever wives and concubines he has. David's not much better. Okay? I mean, okay, well, um, let's let's listen, man. Like, if we're if, Saul's, Solomon's only learning from his father at this point. Like, if the standard, if we're grading on a curve, I mean, Solomon had like three hundred wives, but we're not grading Sol- on a curve. Sol- David, we're not. Like, we're gonna say taking multiple wives in general just never works out. But if we're talking about, you know. Who's more extreme? <laughs> it's pretty easily Solomon in that situation. But where where would Solomon have learned it from? Yeah, that's fair. David, his father. I, so, oh, I, yeah. No one would argue that David is a great dad. No, not at all. Uh, and I'm not arguing that point. I'm just saying like at this point in the story, David's not even fully king yet. He already has six wives. Um, and so it details his sons at this point. This is where it goes in Hinnom. Uh, and now I'm second guessing whether or not um, Abigail was second or third. But doesn't matter here. We'll see. We see the breakdown of his family. We see the introduction of war coming. Um, and then we shift back to, we do this kind of weird dance between 2 Samuel and 1 Chronicles 11, 2 Samuel 23 and 1 Chronicles 11. Um, and this is where we're actually introduced to David's mighty men. 
uh, in both of these accounts, you see this uh, description of some of the prominent men out of 37 uh, total men that are, are detailed here. You hear of the name Eleazar, um, who stood and fights, fought so long that his hand stuck to the sword, um, which is like muscle fatigue. It cramps and it locks in and you can't un- open your hand. Um, so he fought so long and defeated uh, the Philistines that his hand stuck to the sword. You hear this story of Shema who stood in a field and defeated the Philistines by himself. Um, you hear the story of three of the mighty men going to uh, getting water from a cave in Bethlehem. Um, and they break through the Philistine lines to get water from this this cave that David really wanted thir- or water from. Um, they bring it back and David takes it and then he pours it out. He doesn't even drink it um, because he recognizes the, 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 the lives of the men who put uh, their lives on the line to get a drink of water for him from a place he wanted. Um, and so it was a, it was an incredible feat of these men, but also a very humble act from David to pour out the water. Um, you get this report of Abishai, hey, shout out to best, Abishai, the best mighty man um, who killed 300 with a spear. Um, you hear Ben and I, uh, about the lion in a, in a pit on a snowy day. Uh, but you also forget that he defeated a seven foot Egyptian. Uh, with his own, with the Egyptian's own spear. I feel like Benaya uh, has a. Uh, when we all get to heaven, eventually he's going to be like, "Hey, thanks, Mark Batterson. You really, <laughs> you really brought me <laughs> into my the, name on the map. You really brought me into the modern parlance." Uh, if you've not read the book by Mark Batterson, Mark, if you listen to this, thanks for the book. is a great book. Um, but it's, a, it's it really is a great book. You should definitely read it. Um, and so Benaya, uh, Benaya, sorry, not Benaya. I put Benaya because that's what I like to call him. But Benaya, uh, he went in a pit. And with the lion on a snowy day, defeat the lion, um, which if you ever fight hand-to-hand combat, which I do every now and then. No, I'm just yeah, kidding. Yeah, once in a while. Uh, snow is not a great place to fight. And in a pit with the lion, you're, you're kind of caged in. You don't really have much defense or protection against the beast. All of that to say, he kills the lion. And then he fights a seven-foot Egyptian, seven, uh, over seven-foot Egyptian, grabs his spear, kills him with his own spear, um, and is celebrated for that. He's also then finally put in charge of David's bodyguard. Um, so he's one of the like primary individuals who are, is close to David and, and aims to protect David. Um, and so you get this list in both Samuel and Chronicles of 37 men in total uh, that were comprised of David's mighty men. And these are men that have all kind of come over from the different moments that we've read through 1 Samuel uh, already. Uh, we shift back to 2 Samuel here where we jump into chapter 3. Uh, and we go through the bulk of chapter five, or we go through the beginning parts of chapter five. Uh, and chapter three, this is going to be where it details the civil war that be- that happens between the house of David and the house of Saul. And I say civil war because you see this, the, the entire kingdom of Israel, which is what Saul led, is now split into Judah and Israel uh, because of Abner's anointing Ishbosheth of as king of Israel and Judah's anointing David as king of Judah. Uh, and this line is very prominent and very important, and it's very true. It says that David was growing stronger and the house of Saul was becoming weaker. Uh, and that's really the, the foreshadows the, the reality of what happens here. Um, Abner was more of a leader of Saul's army than Ishbosheth, as I've already kind of alluded to. Uh, and he kept acquiring more power in the house of Saul, which you see that detailed in chapter three here. Um, Ishbosheth was dishon- or dishonored Abner because there was this moment where Ishbosheth accused him of sleeping with one of Saul's concu- concubines. Abner took offense to that, uh, and it seems at this point he kind of deserts the family of Saul in favor of David. Uh, and sh- so it shows me, and I've I kind of mentioned this when you were talking, Evan, but the idea that 
Abner's not really this loyal dude. Uh, he's kind of a, a, a mercenary for hire is the vibe I get from him uh, and how he was so quick to turn his back on Saul's uh, son, Ishboseth. When he's the one that got the fleet, he's the one that took Ishboseth. So he took offense to this accusation uh, with do right because it was dishonoring. And so he meets with David about uniting all of Israel and Judah under one rule, under David's rule. David agrees to this, sends him away in peace. Um, to, and Abner's heading out to get all of, to rally all of Israel to bring them back to David uh, so they can be all one kingdom. Uh, so just shortly after this, Joab, uh, who remember the older brother of Ashael, who was killed by Abner, uh, comes back from battle. Uh, to find that Abner was actually there and then had a meeting with David and then was sent away in peace. Uh, And this was Abner or Joab's response. In chapter three, verse 24, we get this. It says, Joab went to the king and said, what have you done? Look here, Abner came to you. Why do you dismiss him? Now he's getting away. You know that Abner, son of Ner, came to deceive you and find out about your military activities and everything you're doing. Then Joab left David and sent messengers after Abner. Well, now what's interesting is you don't get the conversation between David and, and Joab here. What was David's response to this? Um, it's almost one of those things like, what I've done is I've done. Ab- Abner's not as bad as you think. Whatever that looks like. But Joab left David, sent messengers after Oab, jo- Abner, not Oab, Abner. They brought him back from the well of Sirah, but David was unaware of it. Verse 26. When Abner returned to Hebron, Joab pulled him aside in the middle to the middle of the city gate as if to speak to him privately. And there Joab stabbed him in the stomach. So Abner died in revenge of the death of Ashael, Joab's brother. Uh, and so, not even, not even going to fight him fair. Nope. It's but and this is a big deal because uh, if you remember how Abner killed Ashael, it was a similar way. Not pulling him aside to the city gate, but it said it turned around and he stabbed him. Uh, and so Joab is kind of returning the favor a bit. But you also see he's doing this secretively without David's awareness. Well, then it was also like I mean he did turn around and stab him, but it was like mid battle. Oh, totally. Yeah. I'm not, what I'm not yeah. saying it wasn't shady, but it's it was it's interesting the the way that. Ashael died in regards to the, the sure. form that he died, that Joab also paid him that way as well. Um, and I don't think, I wonder if Joab was sure he couldn't have defeated Abner if it was a fair fight anyways. Yeah, I'm um, curious about that. Abner was pretty legit. I mean, the way he was running it. So anyways, all that to say. He's a little sleepy, but he's a good warrior. <laughs> it's true. But he died. Uh, and so then in verse 28, David heard about it later and said, I and my kingdom are forever innocent before the Lord concerning the blood of Abner, son of Ner. May it hang over Joab's head and his father's whole family. And may the house of Joab never be without someone who has a discharge or a skin disease or a man who can only work a spindle or someone who falls by the sword or starves. That's a pretty strong statement. In other words, David's not happy, uh, but he is also admitting innocence. Um, and this comes this comes back to, to, to be honest uh, here in a second. We see this in verse 30. It says, Joab and his brother Abishai killed Abner because he had put their brother Ashael to death in the battle of Gibeon. It's interesting to me that he lumps in Abishai in with Joab as the as an accomplice to killing jo- or Abner. It's interesting to me. I don't know all the implications there, but it is interesting to say that uh, and to see that. But it's also showing the motive. The reason why Joab killed uh, Abner is because of what happened to Abishai. Well, and I think you get you get this idea um, that Abishai is aware that this was happening and maybe even helped it, but he's he's not as involved as Joab because in the end, I mean, this is spoilers for when we get to the end of Second Samuel, but uh, Joab is held accountable for this. Abishai is not, and so and I think that's a very uh, it's a very important thing, uh, an important distinction, I guess, between the brothers. But yeah, yeah, clearly Abishai had something to do with it for sure. 
Uh, and then we get this in verse 31, uh, that David then ordered Joab and all the people who were with him, tear your clothes, put on sackcloth and, mor- sackcloth and mourn over Abner. And King David walked behind the coffin. Um, so you do see, a, a, a again, to me, it comes back to David's recognition of Saul's authority, Saul's family, um, and, and the grief that he feels. Uh, this is me speculating. But I think there's a certain level of grief that David feels in regards to the people of Israel being split like this, to being divided. Um, and then Abner, he had a conversation with Abner. So there was peace between him and Abner. So he he's grieving and then orders Joab to grieve. Um, and so you see David mourning Abner's death. And then he fasts for the rest of the day. And people are like urging him to eat. Um, and and he, he says, I'm not going to eat. Which, which again is really significant because it says it signals to the troops of the army and the family and people of Saul that David had no hand in his death, which is a good thing because if it would have come across as revenge and it was initiated by David, he would have lost some of his reputation and his integrity as a leader uh, within God's people. Uh, and so chapter three ends with this recognition that of David's innocence. Um, chapter four shows that Ishbosheth hears of da- Abner dying uh, and he loses heart and gives up fighting. He just says, I'm done. I'm done fighting. Um, and so two of the leading leading leaders of the raid parties that go out um, heard about Ishbosheth quit, uh, heard about him quitting. Um, and then they head to his house in the middle of the day when Ishbosheth is napping and they kill him. Uh, and they brought his head and his armor to David. Uh, and David is thrilled that his enemy has been killed and he can move on. Yeah. No. That's not David's response. Oh, that's right. David's response was was similar to the Amalekite who who said that he killed Saul. Um, he responds the same way, uh, and he has these two individuals. Uh, I can't remember the names off the top of my head, um, but they're, he had them killed as well because they again messed with the Lord's anointed Saul's family, um, and and it's just another way that you see David pay honor. Uh, to the authority of Saul's family, the heritage and lineage of Saul's family, well, I do which wonder, plays up later as well with this son who was crippled or this grandson or nephew, grandson who was crippled. I do wonder too, if this is less to do, because Ishbosheth is not the Lord's anointed. No. At, at this point, David is. Um, but I do wonder if this has more to do with David's promise to Saul that he would not. Absolutely. Um, yeah, expunge his, his family. Yeah. And I think that's, and that's, a, and that's a good point too, because that's true, because he doesn't, he promises, one of the things that he wasn't mentioned, right, but he promises to Saul, I won't, I'm not going to take out your family. Right. Um, him and Jonathan had a very strong covenant and, and promise between each other um, and to honor well. And again, everything of David's reputation up to this point is one of honor and care and not one to be divisive or proud or arrogant. Um, so we see that uh, in chapter four, uh, that David returns to uh, the two raiding party leaders of Ishbosheth's uh, death. They, they say the same to him, or he, he returns the favor of death to them as well. Um, and he responds that way. The beginning of chapter five, you see this this these uh, response from all of Israel will come to David while he's at Hebron uh, to show a sign of support, submission, and as well as anointing him king. Um, you see the same thing in, in First Chronicles as we shift into Chronicles, uh, the first three verses there, um, as well as chapter twelve. You see uh, the de- it details all of the troops that showed up at this point um, and gives you kind of a more uh, genealogical genealogical reference as far as who showed up. Uh, to present themselves to David at Hebron and anoint him king. Uh, we jump back to 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 17 to 25. Um, and we hear, we see this moment where the Philistines hear that David is anointed king. So they're rallying, trying to find him and fight. 
Um, and David is told after asking God, because that is an, an, uh, one of the markers of David's kingship so far, leadership so far, this up to this point, is that he asks God, you know, in the moments where he kind of pauses with Abigail and Abel, um, asks whether he should attack. Uh, he's, and he, at two different times, two different ways, um, is responsive or responds and then attacks. It says this, uh, chapter five, verse 20 to 25. So when he went to Baal Perazim and defeated them there, and said, like a bursting flood, the Lord has burst out against my enemies before me. Therefore, he named the place the Lord bursts out. If you're curious what the name for that is, it's Baal Perazim. Uh, so you see at the very beginning when David That's went to Baal. That's where I that from. <laughs> Duh. No. Uh, so you just see what the actual name, like the, the name that was referred to, but also the meaning of the name too, which uh, I, I don't know if I've ever picked up on a red, so I just thought it was a fun little tidbit. Um, so the name he named the place the Lord burst out. 20, verse 21 says, the Philistines abandoned their idols there and David and his men carried them off. We actually see in First Chronicles what they did with them because uh, if you just, if you're anything like me and get triggered from the book of Judges and how God's people handled idols, uh, it made me a little bit worried at first. But then if, when you get to First Chronicles chapter 14, you will see uh, that they actually carried off the idols and burned them. Good um, job. So they dismantled them. They got rid of the idols, which is smart. Uh, verse 22 of chapter 5 of Second Samuel says that the uh, Philistines came up again and spread out in the Valley of Rephaim. So in essence, the same spot. Um, it says, so David inquired of the Lord again, and he answered, do not attack directly, but circle around behind him and come at them from op- opposite the balsam trees. Christmas trees? Just kidding. Uh, the balsam trees. When you hear the sound of marching on the tops of the balsam trees, act decisively, which is such... I try to put myself in that moment, like, that'd be such a rad thing. You just hear these footsteps marching across the tops of the trees, That'd be cool. Um, which is a, a reference to the army of the Lord. Uh, so when you hear them act decisively, for the Lord will ha- have gone out ahead of you, strike down the army of the Philistines. Uh, so David did exactly as the Lord c- commanded him. He struck down the Philistines and all the way from Geber, uh, Geba to Gezer. Um, and so you see, uh, we shift in this moment to First Chronicles 14. It's same information as the battles we see here. Uh, in First Chronicles, this added bonus of a line that says, David's fame threat spread throughout the lands and the Lord caused all the nations to be terrified of him. We shift back to second. This is where we get a lot of back and forth. Um, so what I would say is as you're, as you're reading this week, when you start getting to these points, put your hand in Second Samuel, put your hand in Second Chronicles so that way it's easier to flip through pages. My Bible has two ribbons, which, just is, two. which is uh, very much something that I, I utilized a lot this week to yep. flip between them. Well, and I originally had it set for Psalms because that way it's easier to go to Psalms. Nope, I got to move it to Second Chronicles now. Um, but just, I, I should also say, so there's a book that I found on Aaron's bookshelf last year, and then I liked it so much that I ordered it. And it can be helpful, but it's called A uh, a Synoptic Harmony of Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles. Yep. And essentially what- It's a great book. It, yeah, it's really, it's really helpful because even in like these sections where I'm trying to figure out what's different, they just showed the passages side by side. So you can clearly see, yep. the, oh, this is what's getting inserted there. So if you want an extra study help, yeah. it's a good if, you, if you've got time and you want to pick it up, go for it. Uh, but it is, I found it at half price books. It was great. Uh, you spent I, more money I, on it. I paid full price. <laughs> Anyways, all that to say. Um, so we have these moments uh, where you see that David's fame is spreading. Uh, we shift back to Second Samuel for a handful of verses, uh, and it, this is it, it details the stories of Jesus or Jesus David leading the men to take the city of the Jebusites, which is Jerusalem, or what becomes known as the city of David. Uh, and they do this by actually going through a waterway that's carved and through a tunnel under the city. Uh, and it's where the blind and the uh, beggars will typically stay and be. Uh, and so the people of the Jebusites, Jebusites say, hey, David will never enter our town because it was such a well-fortified city. 
uh, and that even that he couldn't get past the blind, the blind, blind men and the beggars. Um, but because that was how he got in, he had his, his troops come in through there. They defeated and conquered the city uh, of the Jebusites, which became the army uh, or the city of David. Um, you see in Chronicles, the same story is played out, but then you see this line that David st- steadily grew more powerful and the Lord of armies was with him. Uh, we jump back to Second Samuel uh, chapter five, verse thirteen. Then, and this is where you're going to kind of like read a little bit ahead, then have to go back in a chapter uh, again. It's just trying to give you the details as they played out in the order of the events that had we that happened. Uh, so we see in verse thirteen this one simple line that David had more concubines and wives, uh, which equals more sons at this time. Uh, we see in, in verses four through five, David is said to have become thirty years old. He was thirty years old when he took on. Uh, reigning as a king, and remind you, this has been a fifteen-year journey, fifteen-ish year journey, because when David was first anointed king, he was roughly 15, 16 years old, I believe, um, if I remember some of my historical data correctly. Um, so he went on a fifteen-year journey from the time he was anointed king to the time he became king. Uh, that's a, that's a long time to wait um, for God, and all the while he walked in humility, he walked in honor, he walked in in consideration for Saul and his family and his right as king. Uh, and it says in total, he reigned for 30, for 40 years. Part of that was, uh, in Hebron before Judah came, uh, and he, he or Israel came and became king over all of, uh, Israel and Judah, uh, verse 11 and 12 details King Hiram of Tyre supplying the necessary items for the city of David to be built up and strengthened. We see that same content and information in first Chronicles 14, which is our little side in that moment. Uh, and then we see, we shift backwards in First Chronicles to chapter 13, uh, backwards in chapter, not backwards in time. Uh, and this is when David, it's a significant moment too, that I think is really important um, because he refers back to this moment of Saul's leadership and reign where Saul did not inquire of the Lord as Saul should have. Uh, so David consults with all the leaders and the people about bringing back the Ark of the Covenant, which currently is not within uh, one of God's people's locations. Where is it at? Jer... Shoot, I should have wrote it down. Uh, anyway, so all the people say, hey, yes, we should bring back the Ark of the Covenant. Um, I, I totally just forgot to write it down. Um, and he says, hey, since we didn't do this when Saul was king, we need to bring back the Ark of the Covenant so we can inquire of the Lord more readily. Um, so everyone says yes. David rallies the people to bring them back, uh, the Ark of, to the city of David. Uh, we see in 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 1, uh, that he David rallies, assembles the, the his fit young men, which totals 30,000 men, which is just crazy. Remember, he came from about 400 men to start when he was all kind of running for his life. And now he's 30,000 fit young men. Um, That'll which is, work. Which is, not, which is not even indicative of his army size. It's just of the of the most agile and fit. The ones who fight. aren't worthless fellows. Sure. There you go. Um, so they, went, they uh, went on a mission to bring back the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, as they were bringing it back, there was great joy. And, and David was dancing with his people. Uh, and then Yuza touched the Ark. Uh, I, I use my channel, my inner Finding Nemo reference where t- Nemo touched the butt. Uh, <laughs> use the touch the ark. Read this. We're going to read this in chapter six, verse five through 11. Um, it says, David and the whole house of Israel were dancing before the Lord with all kinds of firwood instruments, lyres, harps, tambourines, sistrums, and cymbals. Uh, when they came to Nacon's threshing floor, Yuza reached out to the, to the ark of God and took hold of it because the oxen had stumbled. 
Uh, then the Lord's anger burned against Uzzah, and God struck him dead on the spot for his irreverence, and he died there next to the ark of God. David was angry because of the Lord's outburst against Uzzah, so he named the place Outburst Against Uzzah, as it is today. Uh, David feared, I just think the name is funny. It's so practical. David, you are so practical. Uh, David feared the Lord that day and said, how can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? So he was not willing to bring the ark to the Lord, the city of David. Instead, he diverted it to the house of Obed-Edom of Gath. Uh, The ark of the Lord remained in his house for three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and his whole family. Um, And so we see the same account in 1 Chronicles chapter 13. Details the same thing of the joy and celebration. I just, I think it's 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 pretty remarkable to watch all of the people of God are dancing and rejoicing at the Ark of the Covenant making its way back, and then there's this one bummer moment. Um, and Yuza wasn't being, he wasn't being unholy in the sense of his intention, um, but because he touched the the Ark of the Covenant and he was not supposed to. That's why they made the poles back. If you remember the tabernacle, they had made poles and rings to carry the Ark of the Covenant because they're not supposed to touch the holy things of God because they are unholy people. Only the priests were able to uh, have access to the the, the Holy of Holies. Uh, and so you see this God's holiness. You see his standard kind of come full circle. And you don't see these moments in David's reignship or draining right now, but Uzzah touched the Ark. David, or he was killed by God. And, and I think Chronicle says he, was, he died in the presence of God uh, because that's what the Ark of the Covenant represents. Um, and that's where our reading ends this week is this sad moment where Yuza uh, is di- killed, that Obed-Edom uh, is where the Ark rests uh, and God blesses Obed-Edom and his whole family. Um, and David is a little fearful, which is probably the first moment in David's kingship and leadership that we see this fear of I can't do this, right? Um, which is, which again is 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 a significant moment to a degree, um, and we'll pick up next week, kind of the aftermath of this. But for three months, the Ark of the Covenant is with Obed Edom, and the Lord has blessed him. There you be. Well, Aaron, this week uh, it wasn't just Uzzah who died; it was also King Saul, which means that it's time for our first segment of Ooh. ranking a king. Rank it. Okay, so here's the thing. Saul, I feel like, and we kind of discussed it last week. Yeah, we kind of teased it last week a bit. I feel like I want to rank Saul as the baseline of essentially like, he's not a good king. No one would argue that. I also don't think he was like a horrible king either. I think he was, if you look at what he did by and large as a leader, Mm -hmm. he drives out the necromancers and the mediums. He does not lead the people. But then he goes back to one. Yeah, he does personally. Um, He... Uh, he does not lead the people away from worship of Yahweh. They're not worshiping idols at this whole thing. So uh, Saul makes personal, most of his mistakes are personal. They're not affecting the the nation at large. Not all of them, but but some of them mm-hmm. are. Um, obviously his killing all of the priests, not a good, <laughs> not a good move. So he has failures and stuff like that. So I'm not trying to make the argument that Saul is a good king. Totally. Uh, but I think he is kind of that baseline of he's just right in the middle. He does some good things. He does some bad things. Um, but o- overall, he doesn't do anything so catastrophically horrible that he belongs in the same category as some of the apostate kings that we're yeah. going to meet later. I don't know. How do you, what do you feel? Well, I think it's, I think this Saul's the, probably, I would say Saul's probably the hardest one to rank. He's up there. Yeah. And only, only because there's no other king. He's the first. So when it comes to so when you suggest the baseline, it makes the most sense because he was the 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 rightful uh, he was the first king, mm-hmm. um, and so it makes it. 
I mean, it makes it almost a, a no-brainer saying, yeah, he's the baseline and every other king is ranked according to him. Uh, because that's in essence what we're saying with the baseline is we're going to compare every king moving forward to Saul's leadership. And that's not how we've done it in the past, which is why I'm like kind of processing a little bit out loud here for a second. Um, because in the past, we rank a king based upon... Well, I think those tiers still exist, I, I guess. I think you're right, but it, it's 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 curious to me about who, I guess, who are we ranking kings according to? Because if Saul's the baseline, then he becomes the one we're ranking according to. That's what a baseline does. He's he's almost So like maybe the, it's not the right word. Maybe I'm stuck on the word for a second. But because, I mean, I because I was going to say this. This at this point in Israel's history, he's the best king. I mean, that's that's fair because <laughs> he was the only one. Um, but I I do think he's he's I think Middle Road is a great place to put him. I mean, he started off his kingship not wanting to be king. He hid um, when he was called out, and then God had to tell someone, "Hey, he's over there by the supplies." Um, so either he was really good at hiding, or the Israelites were just really blind and dumb. Because if it's by the sp- anyways, all that to say. Um, I'm good. I'm good with him being the baseline. I just think it's it's we have to then provide clarity, uh, and this is probably way too much talking between you and me oh, yeah. about this stupid little uh, thing. But. So we have to we have to reserve the right to change the tiers. But right now, I would say it's there's great kings, good kings, okay kings, bad kings, and then there's like the worst, the worst kings. And so I would say Saul Massive. is right now in the the okay kings category. And you know, but by the end, maybe we change it. But I feel like he's just in the—he's in that middle tier yeah. of kings, the the C. Yeah. No, I don't think will. that. I think you're right. I think that's a good plot, spot to put him. All right. Well, that wraps it up for that segment. But we do have one more thing. Uh, what we learned today. Okay. So for me this week, the thing that stood out is David's constant theme of where do I go to take refuge. And I, I never caught before that the sin that he says he would have committed if he had gone and killed Nabal is taking salvation for himself, um, which I think is something that we do all the time. And, and not that we actually accomplish it, but I think we try to. I think the really easy way to uh, to bring that into the modern world is how many times as Christians do we think that we're earning our own salvation and we commit that same sin of David of not trusting the Lord for our salvation, but we try mm-hmm. to make God love us. But even in other ways, where where are there moments where we're trying to force God's hand, where we feel like, hey, God, I think God has given me this purpose or God has given me this dream to accomplish. And instead of seeking after the Lord, we kind of try and make it happen ourselves. And, and you know, famously, this happens with Abraham, and that ends mm-hmm. that ends very horribly yeah. with uh, with Ishmael and all of that and all of that stuff. So, there is a theme in Scripture where, when the Lord promises something, even then, we're not supposed to go like, "Now go make it happen on your own." Like we're supposed to, and that, that's also I want to be careful too because the other side of the pendulum is like, "Now just sit here and wait for it to happen." Like, no, clearly there's action required on our parts as well. Um, but it's are we taking action? in prayer and consulting the Lord? Or are we just like, yeah, I'm going to go do this now? Yeah. Well, I, <laughs> so you just said that you don't do these things because I, and and I, meaning you don't write them down because you're processing as you, as you are studying. Right. Um, and so I'm in the same boat, but mine literally was going to be the difference between David and Saul was the fact that David inquired of the Lord yeah. and he made it a point to do so, um, which I think is important for us today to even consider um, God, are we, am I am I inquiring of you enough? Like, am I asking of you what's the best thing? What should I be doing uh, with opportunities or my day or how I interact with my neighbor? Should I 
should I, what should I do? Like, I think giving God the opportunity, I mean, it, for me, it practically played out even this last week where, um, long story short, uh, my son has some allergies. And so he had kind of an aphylactic reaction, uh, to something we don't know yet. So we have to go back and visit an allergist again. Um, but he stayed home from school yesterday. Uh, I stayed home from work yesterday, worked from home as much as I could because it was a late night and an early morning. Um, and there was baseball practice that got canceled because here it was raining and hailing for a large chunk of time is what it felt like. And so then I got the text that his baseball practice got canceled. Then I get the text later that his baseball practice is back on because the weather turned and it's sunny and it's not bad. And so my first thought was like, I don't want to go. I don't stinking care to go. Like I don't. And, and I told my wife that I said, I don't want to go. I'm too tired. You're coming from where I said, I just think we skip it and we start on Saturday, which is when his next practice is all that to say, um, in, in the moments as I'm kind of wrapping up some things and I just like, you know what, what's best? And like Gideon should have the, the chance to say yes or no. And come to find out my wife was thinking the same thing. So she asked Gideon why I was out running an errand. Came back. It's like, oh, Gideon wants to go. I'm like, great, let's go. But for me, the, the attitude difference that came from God, I'm going to submit to what's best versus what I want is a big deal. So mm-hmm. all of that to say, long personal story, whatever, about the value of, I think it's important to inquire of the Lord. I'm not perfect at this and I probably will never be, but I think David's early modeling of leadership hinges on his willingness to submit uh, and inquire of the Lord. God, what do you suggest? What do you think is best? Should I go and do this? And then being obedient to it. So that way there's provision and there's and there's covering in the midst of that. So ironically, it's, it's, it's along the same lines. I think that was the dra- biggest con- contrast between Saul and David that we saw, I saw play out in this week's reading was that. Well, it's hard, it's hard to read through the back half of 1 Samuel and not come away thinking about the differences between the two. Men, Absolutely. Because it's very, much, it's very much there. Um, well, that does wrap it up for this week's episode of Let's Read the Bible. As a reminder, we are a podcast of the Grove Church, but we're not the only resource of the Grove Church. You can find our other resources on our website, grove.church, under the media tab. And also, if you have, you know, if this podcast has been a blessing to you and you would like to financially contribute to the ministry that the Grove Church does, you can also do that on our website. There's a give button in the upper right hand corner. And hey, thank you all so much for listening. Have a great week.